Chapter 23 Conclusion From Insurgency to Civil War, 2004 to 2006 Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1 By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable Chapter 23 Conclusion From Insurgency to Civil War 2004 to 2006, page 653. From December 2003 to December 2006, the war in Iraq evolved from a relatively loose insurgency against the U.S.-led coalition into a horrific ethno-sectarian civil war that tore at the fabric of Iraqi society and threatened Iraq's very existence as a unitary state. This three-year period, which began with the false hope that Saddam Hussein's capture in December 2003 would cause the insurgency to evaporate, quickly entered a demoralizing stage caused by the April 2004 uprisings and the Abu Ghraib prison scandal. Had it not been for the response of the departing 1st Armored Division as an unplanned operational reserve, the coalition might well have suffered a strategic defeat along the lines of the 1968 Tet Offensive in Vietnam. The shock of the April crisis dispelled the coalition's unrealistic ideas that the Iraq mission might be handed off in 2004 to a United Nations, or UN, or North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, peacekeeping force. It also exposed the fact that the coalition had too few troops for the mission, a condition that would persist for most of the war. The uprising made coalition commanders wary for the next four years of provoking a war with the Sadr movement. It also bolstered the Sunni insurgency, which promulgated a narrative that it had fought the coalition to a standstill in Fallujah. The summer 2004 transition of coalition commands from Combined Joint Task Force 7, or CJTF-7, to Multinational Force Iraq, or MNFI, and of commanders from Lieutenant General Ricardo Sanchez to General George W. Casey, Jr., appeared to right the ship by bringing new direction and organization to a flagging coalition effort. As Iraq moved into a UN-sponsored electoral process, Casey and MNFI's fight to the elections appeared to deal the Sunni and Shia insurgencies a serious blow in fall 2004. The battles in Najaf, Fallujah, and Samarra showed that no insurgent force could hold terrain in the face of a concerted coalition attack, and that select Iraqi units, such as the 36th Commandos, could be integrated usefully into coalition operations. The clearing of insurgent sanctuaries enabled the January 2005 election to take place, and with a new Iraqi interim government on the horizon, the strategy, agreed upon by Casey, General John Abizade, and Secretary of Defense, or SECDEF, Donald Rumsfeld, of transitioning security responsibility to the Iraqi government and its new security forces, seemed to promise to stabilize the country. In hindsight, however, U.S. leaders had misjudged the situation. The fall 2004 battles had left Muqtada Sadr's and Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's forces intact enough to fight another day, and the 36th Commando's performance had given coalition leaders the mistaken impression that the Iraqi army as a whole was growing quickly enough in capability. The Sunni insurgency in particular was strong enough to produce a Sunni boycott of the January 2005 elections that had far-reaching negative consequences. 
Coalition leaders had assumed that elections would have a unifying effect through the creation of an Iraqi government whose popular legitimacy would sap the insurgency of its strength. In actuality, the Sunni Arab boycott froze Sunnis out of the new government formation and constitutional process, leaving them terrified that they had handed political power to Shia Islamist parties that meant them harm. In the aftermath of this polarizing election, the insurgency that had begun in 2003 as a movement to expel the U.S.-led coalition gradually devolved into a conflict between sectarian militant groups on both sides of the Sunni-Shia and Arab-Kurd divides, with the election itself serving as an accelerant toward civil war. Within the Sunni insurgency, Zarqawi and his al-Qaeda in Iraq aimed at provoking a sectarian civil war by carrying out a relentless terror campaign against the Iraqi Shia community. Other Sunni resistance groups, having realized the strategic error of the January 2005 boycott, began to split from Zarqawi and negotiate to join the political process. However, Iraq's Shia population responded to Zarqawi's attacks by turning to its own ruthless militias to protect its communities and strike back against Iraqi Sunnis, further escalating the sectarian conflict. At the same time, in northern Iraq, Sunni militant groups intensified a war against the Kurds along the Green Line in hopes of expelling Kurdish forces and communities from territories occupied by the Kurdish parties in 2003. Coalition leaders were slow to recognize these changes in the character of the conflict and did not re-examine the fundamental assumptions of the campaign. Instead, they continued to formulate plans and conduct operations as though Sunni and Shia militants were fighting mainly to expel the coalition, rather than fighting each other for power and survival. After the seating of the government of Prime Minister Ibrahim al-Jafri in spring 2005, Many of the Iraqi governance and security institutions the coalition was helping to build came under the control of sectarian parties who used those institutions for sectarian ends. In the Baghdad region in particular, Shia death squads aligned with the Iraqi government and Sunni insurgent death squads each began to prey on civilians from the opposing sect, creating a growing sense of fear among the populace. In summer 2005, as these dynamics grew stronger, the United States was undertaking two initiatives designed to disrupt the Sunni insurgency in its Syrian sanctuary and to give the new Iraqi government the means with which to secure the country itself. The first initiative involved the deployment of teams of military advisors to embed within and mentor the multiplying Iraqi army and police units, a mission the U.S. Army had not conducted on a large scale since the Vietnam War. The additional requirement to deploy several thousand senior officers and non-commissioned officers as advisors fell on a U.S. Army already stretched thin by the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yet, U.S. Army leaders did not seek a significant increase in the Army's end strength and did not halt the modernization or transformation of the Army's brigades, a process that made a large number of active units temporarily unavailable for deployment. In the place of these active units, the Army chose to deploy large contingents from the National Guard, resourcing the 2005 rotation of Operation Iraqi Freedom with almost 70,000 reserve component troops. As a result, during the pivotal 2005 election year, nearly half of the coalition's total force was from the reserve component. The same summer, Casey undertook a second initiative, this one to disrupt the Sunni insurgency's car bomb campaign against Baghdad by shifting almost a division's worth of coalition combat power to the Iraq-Syria border zone. 
While this shift succeeded in disrupting the flow of foreign fighters across the border, hard-won tactical victories in Tel Afar and Al-Qaim obscured the reality that at the operational level, the campaign was heading in the wrong direction. Those successes had come by pulling critical combat power away from central Iraq and removing the most effective break on sectarian violence, just as the conflict among the warring Iraqi factions was accelerating there. With death squads from sectarian militias and rogue sections of the government working to cleanse the Baghdad region of rival sects, the cycle of violence in central Iraq was approaching the point of civil war. The October and December elections of 2005 left coalition leaders with the sense that Iraqis, especially Sunnis, were choosing the democratic political process over the insurgency, and that the Iraqi security forces that had secured the voting were ready to begin taking responsibility for security. For Casey and MNFI, the time seemed right to begin the U.S. troop drawdown that he had believed since August 2004 would be the eventual path to success in Iraq and to accelerate the transition of responsibility and bases to the Iraqis. MNFI's assessments were clouded by the fact that violence against coalition troops was decreasing as AQI and other militia groups became more focused on killing fellow Iraqis. They were also clouded by the coalition's flawed evaluations of the Iraqi security forces, which often failed to capture intangible factors such as Iraqi units' will to fight. Finally, in retrospect, Coalition leaders and strategists should also have recognized far earlier the danger that Iraq would descend into ethno-sectarian civil war in the aftermath of the collapse of the Iraqi state in 2003. They should also have predicted that hastily organized elections held amid a violent ethno-sectarian power struggle were almost certain to be destabilizing rather than stabilizing events. In contrast to the generally homogenous United States, which needed 13 years to write a constitution, ratify it, and seat an elected government after declaring independence, the heterogeneous Iraq would have less than two years to accomplish the same tasks after the transition of sovereignty. Recognizing these factors might have led the coalition to act with greater caution as it sped toward Iraqi elections and the erection of a new state. These dynamics came to a head in the aftermath of the Samara Mosque bombing in February 2006. In the days following the attack, Casey and MNFI mistakenly perceived only a temporary spike in violence and judged that the Iraqi political process would stabilize the country. MNFI leaders' denials that Iraq had fallen into civil war echoed the coalition's 2003 denials of an active insurgency and stifled conversation about whether the coalition's fundamental strategy needed to be changed. Also, as in 2003, MNFI in 2006 believed the situation could be resolved by tactical responses. As the situation continued to deteriorate, however, Casey came to realize that the conflict had shifted from an insurgency against coalition forces to a complex war among Iraqis for political and economic power. Even so, Casey maintained that Iraqis needed to resolve their sectarian problems themselves, a conclusion that validated his decision to continue with MNFI's campaign plan of transitioning authority and bases to the Iraqis and reducing his force to 10 U.S. brigades by the end of 2006. The seating of a national unity government under Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki, the killing of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, and the promising outreach to Sunni insurgents seemed to validate Casey's decision as well. 
In actuality, the shrine bombing did not mark the start of the Iraqi civil war, but rather the point at which MNFI's perception of the conflict began to catch up with the reality that resistance to the coalition was no longer the principal cause of Iraq's violence. In truth, Iraq's violent power struggle had begun with the fall of Saddam, and only intensified during the tenure of the Jafari government. The four major groups Casey perceived as defining the security environment in the post-Samara period, Sunni extremists, Shia extremists, the Sunni resistance, and Iran, had all been competing fiercely in Iraq's communal struggle since mid-2004, if not earlier. By the end of Operation Together Forward II in October 2006, the assumptions underpinning the coalition's transition strategy had crumbled. Neither the seating of a four-year government nor the receding of U.S. troops from the Iraqi population nor the death of al-Qaeda in Iraq's or AQI's leader had created a stabilizing effect. Pressured by militants on all sides, the Iraqi government ministries had virtually ceased to function, rendering reconstruction plans moot. As U.S. commanders were forced to cancel their planned withdrawal of combat brigades in mid-2006, then-President George W. Bush lost faith in the coalition's transition strategy and began to seek a new one. Simply put, the transition had failed. Explaining the Failure of the Transition Strategy Page 656 the key reasons for the failure of the transition strategy begin with the coalition's understandable but mistaken decision to focus on operations against insurgent groups in 2004 to 2006, rather than on preventing the emerging Iraqi civil war. In the context of an Iraqi civil war, the elections of 2005 proved to be destabilizing events that handed control of the state and its resources to one party in that war to be used against another warring party. In addition, the coalition leader's assumption that the presence of foreign troops created antibodies and insecurity in Iraq was counterproductive. As coalition forces began withdrawing from the Iraqi population in 2005 to 2006, they left a security vacuum that the warring party's militants filled to the detriment of the population. As Casey instructed his units to consolidate on larger bases, they began to lose awareness of the security situation in the streets and neighborhoods of their areas of operations, undermining Casey's own guidance for MNFI units to conduct counterinsurgency operations. This loss of situational awareness masked the growing danger of sectarian violence, a danger that coalition leaders compounded by deciding to off-ramp two full brigades scheduled to arrive in 2006. By the time MNFI finally realized in mid-2006 that the character of the conflict had changed, it was too late. The coalition did not have enough forces to suppress the escalating violence. The coalition leader's antibody theory was paired with the assumption that reducing the coalition footprint was necessary to prevent the Iraqis from developing a dependency on coalition forces that would slow the Iraqi security forces' growth. Taken together, these concepts produced continual pressure from senior U.S. leaders and commanders to reduce forces. At the operational and tactical levels, these factors meant that coalition units were constantly starved of manpower and that CJTF-7 and MNFI went three years without a true operational reserve. The predictable result was the opening of geographic gaps in security that insurgent groups recognized and exploited. 
Another key component of the transition strategy was the premise that Iraqi security forces, which coalition commanders assumed would not create the same antibodies as foreign troops, could be quickly and effectively built, thereby enabling coalition forces to withdraw. Several factors hindered the coalition from developing Iraqi military capabilities sufficiently to take over security tasks and achieve this goal. First, the sheer scope of the security force assistance mission in Iraq went far beyond what the U.S. military was prepared to accomplish and vastly exceeded the capacity of the U.S. special forces that traditionally executed such missions. The ad hoc transition teams were an inadequate substitute, with their size, composition, and command relationships with tactical commanders all proving to be challenges that degraded their effectiveness. The coalition's early decision that the Iraqi security forces should be designed without capabilities that could be threatening to Iraq's neighbors compounded these problems, given the danger of Iraq's surrounding region. More importantly, perhaps, it resulted in an Iraqi security force, or ISF, that was unable even to maintain internal security. In addition, the decision to use contractors to provide the ISF's logistics hobbled the ISF's long-term development while creating the temptation and opportunity for corruption that corroded Iraq's new security institutions. These deficiencies were masked by Multinational Security Transition Command Iraq, or MNSTCI's, and MNFI's focus on flawed metrics for ISF effectiveness. Rather than subjectively evaluating Iraqi units' ability to fight, the Transition Readiness Assessment, or TRA, primarily focused on quantifiable factors such as the number of soldiers present and equipped. It also missed the crucial issue of each Iraqi unit's ethno-sectarian makeup, which might have served as an indicator of whether the ISF was truly a national force or a politicized one. Nevertheless, the TRA became a key component of determining progress in the coalition campaign plan and in making decisions to draw down coalition forces. Beyond political and security transition, the coalition undermined its own counter-terrorism and counter-insurgency operations by its incoherent detention policies and operations. The decision to treat captured insurgents under the Geneva Conventions as civilian detainees rather than enemy prisoners of war meant the issue of detention was convoluted and challenging for the duration of the war. The United States never solved this problem, and insurgents and terrorists took advantage of the dead space and legal loopholes that existed between the two Geneva Conventions categories. These challenges, coupled with constant political pressure to reduce detainee population, resulted in overcrowding and insurgent recruitment in detention facilities, as well as a dysfunctional review system that repeatedly released large numbers of the enemy back to the battlefield. The coalition's own detention system gave the enemy breathing space in which to mature and to make the battlefield a more dangerous place for coalition troops. Finally, the coalition's transition strategy never satisfactorily addressed the issue of destabilizing interventions by Iraq's neighbors in 2004-2006, especially the Syrian and Iranian regimes. The Syrian regime allowed its territory to become a base for Ba'athist militants and militant jihadists who infiltrated into Iraq and fueled a sectarian terror campaign there, a decision that would later have consequences for the survival of the Syrian state itself. Meanwhile, on Iraq's eastern border, Iran funneled support to Shia militant proxies fighting U.S. and coalition forces and conducting large-scale sectarian cleansing in central Iraq. 
Washington policymakers recoiled from addressing the serious threat these twin insurgent sanctuaries posed to MNFI's campaign. This policy failure resulted in inadequate operational-level answers to a strategic problem, such as the misguided shifting of coalition combat power from Baghdad West to the Syrian border in 2005. Innovations, Adaptations, and Signs for the Future Page 658 Despite the failure of the transition campaign, the years 2004 to 2006 saw considerable innovation and change, some of which developed from the bottom up and some that were the result of strategic decisions. General Peter Schoomaker's choice to continue army transformation amid the strains of two wars represented one such strategic decision that had an operational impact in the Iraq theater for the entire war. Army transformation was beneficial in pushing key resources such as intelligence assets and analysts down to the brigade level, where they were useful in the decentralized Iraq operating environment. At the same time, however, the troop strength of army brigades decreased considerably, which was problematic in population-centric counterinsurgency warfare. As a result, the net benefit of transformation for the Iraq war is unclear. In the realm of civil-military operations, Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzads and Casey's decision to transplant the concept of Provincial Reconstruction Teams, or PRTs, from Afghanistan to Iraq represented another substantial innovation. In principle, the injection of PRTs aimed to integrate different elements of national power into the struggle to improve Iraq's ability to govern, which presumably would improve its legitimacy. In practice, U.S. government agencies were slow to execute and manage this integration in 2006. Most non-Department of Defense agencies lacked the resources to make a considerable contribution and lacked the authority to force government personnel to take dangerous PRT assignments. A lack of familiarity with interagency operating procedures and a lack of Arabic language capacity further hindered effective operations as the PRTs got underway. Only later in the war would PRTs begin to have a significant operational impact. More beneficial than these strategic initiatives was the increasingly effective integration between special operations and conventional forces from 2004 to 2006. Whereas during the earliest phases of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, special operations forces or SOF had been given their own battle space, by 2004, SOF elements were consistently operating in the battle space of conventional forces. As traditional SOF conventional stereotypes and misperceptions began to break down, new relationships and operating procedures began to develop. By 2006, special operators and conventional units were learning to operate symbiotically, taking advantage of each other's strengths and compensating for each other's weaknesses. Using the joint doctrinal relationship of supported and supporting elements, MNFI effectively integrated SOF units into its campaign plan, at times even making the SOF units the supported element and assigning conventional forces to assist them. As the war progressed, the personal relationships and improvised operational procedures that had developed from 2004 to 2006 paid significant dividends. SOF also underwent a revolutionary internal innovation during this period, learning how to fight networked insurgencies more effectively. Before the war, special operations doctrine held that direct action missions, raids or ambushes, should be based on highly detailed intelligence and meticulously planned, 
with the executing unit often spending days preparing for a mission that might last minutes or hours. Given the fleeting nature of insurgent targets in Iraq and Afghanistan, however, SOF upended conventional wisdom and doctrine, planning missions based on a minimal amount of intelligence and launching them with little preparation. Special operators often relied on a playbook to determine tactical options and launched multiple missions per night, aiming to obtain the additional intelligence needed to launch follow-on raids and to create a compounding effect through repeated blows on the insurgency. By inflicting significant losses in short periods of time, the special operators sought to induce shock in the insurgents' organizational networks and rob them of the initiative. Stuck in a reactionary cycle, insurgent groups experienced difficulty generating operational effects, thereby providing space for conventional forces to advance the objectives of the larger campaign plan. Such innovations, in their infancy in 2004 to 2006, came to have significant operational effects in the later years of the war. At the same time that SOF units were learning how to dramatically increase the tempo of their operations, some conventional units were rediscovering and employing traditional counterinsurgency tactics, as in Tel Afar and Al-Qaim in 2005 and Ramadi in 2006. In those cases, counterinsurgency tactics, extensive partnership with Iraqi units, and U.S. military support for grassroots reconciliation paid dividends. So did the coalition troops' increasing skill in dealing with factions that had formerly fought them, but whose motivations could be leveraged against al-Qaeda in Iraq and other irreconcilable insurgents. Though these approaches were successful at the tactical level, they did not have a strategic impact in 2005 to 2006 because they ran counter to MNFI's focus on national elections, a reduction in the coalition military presence, and steady transition to Iraqi control. Nevertheless, as the failure of that MNFI campaign plan in late 2006 led President Bush and other senior U.S. leaders to search for a new strategy, the examples of local success in Tel Afar, Al-Qaim, and Ramadi would loom large. Counterinsurgency tactics, partnership with Iraqi units, and reconciliation with former insurgents would become the centerpieces of the coalition's thinking and operations in 2007, under new commanders with a new campaign plan. End of Chapter 23 Conclusion From Insurgency to Civil War, 2004 to 2006 Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021